Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Chris Campbell is the chief strategist at Kroll, formerly Duff and Phelps prior to their merger. Before his role at Kroll, Chris was unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate to serve as the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Financial Institutions from 2017 to 2018. Prior to that, he served as the staff directors of the Senate Finance Committee and Senate Judiciary Committee. He designed, managed, and coordinated the U.S. Senate Republican agenda in the areas of international and domestic taxation, international trade, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the national debt, and in his government leadership roles, Chris helped spearhead some of the most impactful financial legislation and international negotiations of the last decade. Chris is a frequent guest commentator on national television involving the economy. And if all of that's not enough, Chris also serves on the boards of numerous tech and fintech companies, including Bit, Coinstar, WeConnect, and T0. And he is on the advisory board of many more, including Degree Insurance, Float Financial, Cross River, and Mend. Chris has become a close friend and a regular speaker for our students. He has an incredibly interesting story and provides unique insight on the financial system with deep experience in both the public and private sectors. Today's episode was a real treat, and we hope you enjoy it. So without further delay, we bring you Chris Campbell. Chris Campbell, my friend, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. Before we dive in, how are you and where are you calling in from? I am in sunny Miami. It's always a good place to hide out over winter, and it's certainly this winter is not any different. That it's as a lot of my friends in New York and in the Northeast are battling snow right now and battling sun. So not a bad thing. You were one of the many who flocked from New York down to Miami, right? Yeah, I actually kind of beat the crowd down here. I got to here a little before. Yeah, it's been great. It's really been interesting to see how much of New York has actually moved down. It's you know, there's so many new restaurants here that are from New York or a lot of friends and membership clubs or whatever. It's just really been a, kind of fun and fascinating to watch this migration down south of funds and of companies and entrepreneurs and industries. It's been a real interesting thing. I really kind of see this around the country, right? There's been a big, great migration you know, to Texas and then Intermountain West and to Southern Florida. It's funny, Maya, my fiance and I, we've had a number of conversations about where we want to live full time one day. And the Bay Area where we are now, it's always been firm in our minds. But only in the last 12 months, when people ask that question, I sort of stutter now. And I'm like, well, I love the Bay Area. I still intend on staying here for good. But there's a little bit of hesitation where I'm like, oh, Miami or Austin seems so great right now. And so many of my friends have moved there. So I'm, I'm jealous. I appreciate you having a guest bedroom when some of us can actually come visit Miami, making it easy to come visit and stay. Chris, I want to dive right in. I want to dive right in. I have so many questions for you. I've been really looking forward to our episode because I think you have a uniquely interesting story to tell. Most of the guests that we have on this podcast, they are investors through and through. They've been in financial services almost their entire career. And you've had a very interesting journey, both in the public sector and the private sector. And beyond the variety of experience that you've had, you also just have an incredibly unique life story. Many, many people that I've talked to in the past who who know you, some of our mutual friends, 
have all commented on how interesting your story is and how memorable your story is. So how about we dive right in? Can you just begin by telling our audience your story? Yeah, sure. Of course. I grew up pretty humbly in a very small city called Hemet in Southern California, which is pretty much equidistant between the ocean and Palm Springs. And so the high desert, living in the heat is definitely not a, something I'm not unfamiliar with. I'm one of six kids, actually five of six. There's 11-year gap between myself and my next older brother. And somewhere in that 11 years, we're same parents, but somewhere in that 11 years between my next older brother and myself, things got really difficult economically for my family. And so we became episodically homeless most of my life. My father was largely absent from most of my childhood. And when he was there, he was pretty abusive. And so I decided when I was 16 to, along with my baby sister, to leave home, which we did and became financially independent since then. And so I worked very hard to network and to, to do everything could to really survive it being a janitor and whatever else we could do to make money. But for a couple people in politics that really leaned in and really showed me a future, a vision of a future that I otherwise would not have had, you know, likely would still be back in that really difficult spot where a lot of my contemporaries are in prison or drug addicted. And so I started out campaigning in politics found a real knack for it. I just found it was a lot of fun and selling ideas, something I really loved and, and really I took a real keen interest in. That later led me to a really close relationship, almost like a father and son relationship, really with a U.S. senator named Orrin Hatch from Utah, who brought me back to D.C. to help him administer and run the Senate Judiciary Committee, committee that. I called the Drugs and Thugs Committee. It does all anti-drug policy and crime policy, but as well as choosing federal judges, all different kinds of federal judges, including the Supreme Court. So I had a, had a, a part in choosing some of the justices on the Supreme Court and getting, getting to know the court very well. I'm gratefully and very happily not a lawyer and very quickly recognized and realized that the Judiciary Committee, although it does an amazing work for the country and has an amazing bevy of senators that serve on it, it's a very partisan committee, probably one of the most partisan committees on Capitol Hill. It's just not naturally how I'm geared. And so I decided to leave and get an MBA. I did, and which took me to Arizona. Started some companies during my MBA process program and was then called back to D.C. by Senator Hatch and other members to help run the Senate Finance Committee which is in contrast to the Judiciary Committee being my most bipartisan committee on Capitol Hill, effectively does all of the economic issues, all of the money issues, spent mostly the spending issues in DC. So it's in charge of 70% of outgoing spending in the government and 100% of incoming revenues. So all tax policy, all trade policy, all entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, welfare, interest on the debt and the debt ceiling, managing all of that was all under our purview. And so while there, uh, during it's called the Obama years, I was the lead negotiator on economic issues on behalf of the U.S. Senate. You know, I got to know very well the then vice president, the current president of the United States, and the team that Obama had assembled, including the president and his cabinet, to really tend to get what we could get done. I'm a Republican by registration, but I'm a really bipartisan person. And so I always try to attack a problem in a way that both sides win and hopefully win, win equally. I can't always win every time, so I can't say that every negotiation was successful, but we certainly tried to do our best to make sure that every negotiation was successful. Obama cycled out of the race. President Trump won. He chose 
Stephen Mnuchin at the time, Steve Mnuchin, to be a secretary of treasury nominee. That nomination had to go through the finance committee first before it was considered on the U.S. Senate floor. During that process, what would later become secretary Mnuchin, and I became very close talking quite often during that process. And so when he was confirmed by the Senate, eventually, it took a long time to get that done. But when he was eventually confirmed, he asked me to join him in the cabinet. And after doing some soul searching and talking to some Democrats and Republicans and many other folks that I trusted, I got accepted the nomination from President Trump to be confirmed to the Department of Treasury, where I was unanimously confirmed by all 100 senators and served there for two years and then left Treasury to join a firm called Duff & Phelps, which has now been rebranded as Kroll as their chief strategist. During that time, we sold the firm, did a private transfer from sponsorship. And in addition to my work, I do it now Kroll. I do a great deal of advisory work for equity with companies that are of all different sizes, but mostly in fintech and healthcare. I also do my own investing I'm a teacher back at the schools that I did an undergrad and started my MBA program with, and I'm a contributor to several different news outlets. I often say, and Ross, and you're probably sick of hearing this, but I lived such an incredibly blessed life. I live a life that I should not have lived. And every single day of my life, I know that the benefits I have and the privilege that I now live in, it can evaporate tomorrow. And so I feel an incredible obligation to mentor and try to find ways of opening up the ideas and opportunities for folks that don't have or perhaps don't see a path out of where they're at currently. I can tell you, I can personally attest to you that with hard work and grace of God or whatever you believe in, really incredible things can happen. It's possible for anyone, right? I mean, other than being born in the United States, a male and white, I really wasn't given much in this world. And so I try to love as much as I can and try to give back as much as I can in very meaningful ways. And that journey can lead brought me to you, Ross, which I'm grateful for, to making sure that folks know that conscious capitalism can be really, really impactful and very meaningful to folks. You can be in finance and make a lot of money, involved in great companies doing amazing things, and still make a real impact in the world that can be exceptionally meaningful and leave an imprint knowing that whatever you touched is better than before you touched it, and that you have an obligation to be able to make sure that you give a hand up or some benefit to folks that don't have what you have. Because again, one wrong move or waking up the wrong side of the bed or for whatever reason, that can all go away, recognizing how lucky we are and and the small part we can play in other people's lives. It can be just such an amazing thing, and it really can be deeply impactful. So. I'm proud of what you're doing. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And it means a lot. And I really appreciate you sharing your story in detail. I can say with confidence, I'm sure all of our listeners probably have a thousand questions just hearing your story. I only have about 20, so I'll try to get through as many of them as I can (laughs) listening. I've I've heard your story before, but even hearing it again, I, I still have new questions. The first question I want to ask, Chris, is, you know, you've been an incredible friend by helping me muster up the courage to tell my own life story as well. You know, I have some kind of challenges in childhood, some vulnerability there. And it was really difficult for me initially to begin sharing my story. I actually remember when I was staying with you in Miami and I had a couple of calls with very, very senior financial executives and you were like, just tell them your story. I looked at you like, what? I can't. And you're like, trust me, tell them your story. 
And two meetings back to back, I just went for it. And I told my story. And in both of those meetings, the execs were like, we need to meet again. And I want to get involved and I want to help. And I remember like, Chris, it actually, it worked. Like people actually respond to this. And I still even feel vulnerable thinking back to that moment. It was so hard for me. I literally needed you there, like practically over my shoulder. Like you got this dude, just, just go for it. Just try it and watch. Was it initially difficult for you to share some of the more vulnerable parts of your life story early on? Like you mentioned your family, some of those challenges, was that hard at first? Yeah, like absolutely. I'm a product of many, many, many years of therapy. So I can tell you, I personally attest to you that really relationships come down to a lot of things, but one of the nubs of them is trust. And one of the aspects of trust is vulnerability. And if you can, with confidence, not cockiness, but with confidence, know, own your personal story and know that um, there's really nothing that can be done You've lived it and hopefully you've had a chance to digest it and kind of put it in, in a perspective so that that can be healthy and, and meaningful. You know, on the good parts, you can enhance the bad parts you can not relive. And if you can share that in a way that expresses vulnerability to the folks that you do business with or the people you close, that are closest to in your life, those relationships become that much more meaningful because one of the predicates of trust is vulnerability. And it's always counterintuitive, but I tell you that you've learned that the more you lean in, the more meaningful the relationships you have in your life are. And someone that grew up like me, you know, with not, I'm not really exceptionally close to my family, except my younger sister, you know, my friends become my family and some of my people, the people I work with become my family. And so because of that, I can tell you that you can build those bonds with people that are not blood relatives that can be even stronger than that of those relationships that are blood, blood related because of you know just sharing who you are and owning who you are and being honest and vulnerable. I really, really appreciate you unpacking that. I think for a lot of people listening, especially investors in the financial sector, I think there is this reputation that you cannot be vulnerable. You can't look weak. Saying one thing that makes you look stupid in front of a client could cost a deal. Saying one thing that makes you look soft in front of a managing director could cost you the promotion and a career track at a firm. And so I think for people listening to hear that you have been vulnerable, you've shared you know, honestly who you are and the struggles and challenges you've been through and still been, in my opinion, incredibly successful, I think is really important for people to hear. With that, I would actually love to dive into some of the later parts of your journey and just kind of walk through some of the parts of your story you shared. First, starting with your public service, if that's all right. Sure. Of course, you had mentioned you were unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate right, to become the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Financial Institutions. Can you break down a little bit more how that came about first and also kind of walk us through some of the critical decisions you handled during your tenure in that role? Sure. The role came about actually through the confirmation process of Secretary Mnuchin. You know, we got, became very close. And my experience in government, having gotten to know very well the U.S. senators, especially the senators that were responsible, or at that time, we didn't know this, but I mean, we're going to become responsible for writing the 2017 tax reform bill, but best known as the Trump tax cuts. Those relationships were very meaningful to the secretary in the White House and have me on that side of the, in the executive branch, not the legislative branch, helping that process out, which is one of the major things we did in Treasury, as well as reorient set of laws called Dodd-Frank that kind of govern the regulatory aspect and relationship between Washington and Wall Street, all different kinds of matters, and then worked on cybersecurity issues, both offensive and defensive related to the U.S. financial institutions. 
dealing with the treasuries, with the managing our debt, the U.S. government's debt, and then a relationship between U.S. financial institutions and Department of Treasury at the White House. There was a conduit between that as well. I had a real significant hand in choosing most of the financial regulators, working closely with the folks in the White House and, and the Secretary's office, up to and including Chairman Powell at the Fed, and working closely with those regulators, even on my time with Capitol Hill, but very, very closely on a variety of uh, policy issues that we were driving at uh, Treasury. I wound wound down the TARP program while I was there. We also did some meaningful changes to the CDFI program, which is a program that's an important program that that allows for the banking of traditionally underbanked or non-banked people. It's a long list. I could keep going and going, but yeah, I called it my treasure years that were kind of like dog years. We did a lot of work with a great team and Secretary Mnuchin was a great secretary. You know, it's really incredible to work with and for and excited to have had the opportunity to serve. And it was very meaningful to me to be able to be asked and never in a million years would I've ever thought as a kid that I would be, you know, unanimously confirmed to, to a president's cabinet to help steward anything other than let alone the part of the U.S. economy. So it was a really incredible experience. And gosh, I learned so much in the process. Candidly, it's been very meaningful and useful to a lot of my clients now. I would imagine so, right? Not, not many people have that experience on the inside and are coming back now over to the financial sector. I'm curious, can you, for those of us listening who have never been in politics, have never been in the public sector, especially in the upper echelons, right, of someone called power and decision-making, what is it like in there? You know, how do decisions get made? You know, you hear all these stories about how there's so much political gamesmanship and there's there's all these favors and, and you just hear in the public sphere, a very negative rhetoric about the public sector and how things get done. If you saw Hamilton, you know, there's the whole song, The Room Where It Happens, right? Would love to hear from your perspective what it was like, you know, behind the doors in Capitol Hill, what it was like to try to get things done. I get this question a lot. And I thank you for it. I just get different shades of this question. I'll say that the far majority of members of Congress are there for the right reasons. When I say far majority, I mean like there's maybe one or two or three outliers that just perhaps not there for the right reasons. That being said, I think that there are different and important constituencies for each party, and every single person that serves in Congress has a very important constituency, either their voters or the companies that, that are in their district or state, their governor, their, and then there's a whole bunch of money that's involved in politics. Campaigning is very important, but also very expensive these days and becoming more expensive. Yeah, there's just an enormous amount of different constituencies and, and obligations and, and viewpoints that have to be reflected in any deal. You know, I think that any good negotiator or someone's going to kind of bring down both, bring together both sides and, and come to a deal has to understand those pressure points on both sides. And, and also, all too often, we don't do this even amongst our friends and, you know, people that we, everyone interacts with every single day. But I've always found that the best orientation mentally going into any negotiation, be it a financial institution, you know, a deal or something in government or whatever, is really not seeing the other person as stupid or misinformed or ill-informed. And Because oftentimes what happens, especially in politics, is that if you just think like, oh, they just don't know. So if I tell them enough, they're going to realize something. Or if I scream it loud enough, they're going to change their position. It just doesn't happen. You have to understand where their, their pressure points are, where their, their challenges are, their pain points are, and try to solve those issues. It's the exact same thing in public and private negotiations, I found. That was my always my orientation going in and really meaningfully trying to find a way to get to yes and working hard to make sure that we do. And so 
on Capitol Hill, it's different than in the administration. There are 435 members of Congress that are vote, that vote on bills, and there's 100 U.S. senators. So 535 members of Congress that are elected that can vote on bills. Every single one of them, you can kind of think of as a small business that have their own CEO, their own president, their own kind of thing, and none of them report to each other. So they're all independent, and all of them are going to have their different orientations. And as someone who's negotiating or someone who's going to put together a bill or, or something, you have to go to each one of those storefronts, those little small businesses, knock on the door and say, like, what can we need? You know, what do you have to sell? What do you, what do you want? And kind of reflect all of their interest you know, in a bill that you're going to put together. That is not the way, that same way in the administration, of course, there's one president. Ultimately, every single person in the administration works for the president. And so in some capacity. And so while there are dissenting voices and a lot of different pressures within an entire administration, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people, different departments, you know, some people with international orientation and domestic orientation and labor and that kind of stuff and having all of those voices chide in, but they're not individual storefronts. They're kind of a big company, if you will. It's a very large, very, very large company with one CEO and different branches. It's managed a bit differently. So there's a lot of box checking that has to take place as would be very familiar to a lot of people listening that really work in very large companies. There's processes in place and that kind of stuff. And the process coming to a decision on Capitol Hill is very different than the process coming a decision on these in the executive branch because of that, just the orientation, the way it's the way it's structured. And they're just candidly really one big boss, the administration, but as always the president. You know, there are five five hundred and thirty-five bosses, if you will, on Capitol Hill, and all of them have their own different take on everything. And very often there's not harmony, certainly not a consensus in the early days on any one issue. Right, right. We see that. That's all I hear every time I take a shower in the morning and ask Google to play me the news. I hear about the lack of harmony every single day. I'm curious, and you probably get this question a lot too, you worked in the Trump administration. I think generally regarded as a very controversial administration, definitely a subject of conversation from people on both sides of the aisle, did a lot of good, lots of policies, lots of decisions that a lot of people didn't agree with. You know, fans, you know, people that are really, really not fans, pretty polarizing figure. I think Donald Trump was as a president and would love to just hear your sort of inside take on to the extent that you're willing and able to share what it was like being inside that administration. You can imagine I get this question a lot. I think the answer almost always surprises everyone. And that is that being on the inside was normal. There was no drama, no controversy. We were, I mean, if you look at what we did at the Department of Treasury, the policies that we created, absent the tax reform bill, which Democrats just couldn't get themselves to, to endorse, but effectively everything else we did was we either sought out, significantly sought out bipartisan voices and interests of labor and cohorts and constituencies that would traditionally not be Republican and really tried to reflect their views on policies that we did with reorientation of Dodd-Frank. We actually wrote a bill with Capitol Hill to change Dodd-Frank, and that was a bipartisan bill. Dodd-Frank, for those of you who don't know Dodd-Frank, was a all-Democrat bill the first time it came around. And so people scratch their heads every time I say this, but it's working for the administration, especially Department of Treasury, which tends to be a more bipartisan, more kind of even keel level-headed group because it's a very small group of people who actually administer the former treasury, those that are confirmed. It's a small group and uh, relative to other agencies. 
And the enormous import of the department has a significant operations in Homeland Security, and and we do, you know, CFIUS and tracking dollars against terrorism. And we work closely with the U.S. intelligence agencies on on that side. And we have an enormous amount of operations, tax treaties, and other things that we do, other economic cooperative agreements we have with other countries. There's an entire international side of Treasury that has any of these things, if we can somehow screwed it up, if not we, but anyone in the Treasury screwed it up, you know, that would have significant and significant impact in the overall economy, both here and in our country and abroad. So, you know, take your job very seriously. And it's something that we did. And I can tell you that everyone I served with at Department of Treasury really did lean in and really took their job extremely seriously. And we're very serious folks. And so smart and, and uh, capable. And so being on the inside looking out, I'm cognizant of the reputation and the way the media portrayed the administration. It just wasn't my reality from an inside looking out perspective. I appreciate you painting a clear picture, which I think is counter to a lot of people who were not on the inside, counter to, I think, just general public sentiment. It's helpful. I want to ask you another quick question. We've talked a lot about your experience in the public sector. Now you've been in the private sector, right? Joining Duffin Phelps, now Kroll very recently. I want to dive into why, what drove that transition. Can you tell us a little bit more about what drove your decision to transition into a financial firm and some of the considerations you took into account while making that decision? I spent a lot of time in D.C., during my department assignment from the Treasury, leading up to the 18 when I left, so I served in 17 and 18, we had accomplished all of the major boxes that we wanted, that, that, we, that were to, to be checked in the administration. So tax reform had been done. We did a re- reorientation of Dodd-Frank. We had tackled some big cybersecurity stuff. We set up, set up a new opera of cybersecurity and wound down TARP. And I kind of felt that the major things that we had had to accomplish were done. Of course, in Washington, there's always a crisis around the corner, and it could be you're, if you're waiting for another, wait for an end of crises, you're never going to be done. Because of course, immediately after I left, we had this crazy virus called you know COVID nineteen that we learned about, and we had then the Department of Treasury had to set up a new emergency loan programs, the PPP, and other loan facilities that you know really helped to stabilize the U.S. economy. Working closely with the regulators, but up until that point, we had you know a relatively stable economy. It was growing in ways that had never been done before. You know, many people forget that then of eighteen, irrespective of what cohort you were in, if you're white, black, brown gay, straight, male, woman, doesn't really matter, young or old, really financially, you're doing better off than you were really kind of, depending on the cohort, that had ever been measured by the U.S. government. So it's easy to forget that. And, you know, COVID has been such a disaster for the economy, as well as to so many people who really unfortunately lost their lives over it and become very ill before COVID. We were doing pretty well as a country economically. Right, right. So I know to answer your question quickly, I forgot the exact that question. So we had kind of checked all the major boxes because I was confirmed as an assistant secretary of financial institutions. There were some really strong ethics laws preventing me from having any conversations with any U.S. financial institutions for post-government work. And so I made a leap of faith and left. And after that, had some meaningful conversations with some large financial firms in New York private equity firms, investment banks, uh, venture capital firms. Very, very progressive friend of mine who had started several investment banks and it was a 
Carter administration official during, at the Department of Treasury. He started some investment banks in several of them and sold them. Chastened me to, to meet the folks at, at then Duff and Phelps, two guys that created Noah and Jake. I did so on his urging. I was pretty far down the process of other financial firms. They laid out a vision of significant growth, hypergrowth in a company. And really, genuinely, a year and a half later, we sold. It turned out to be a, a pretty good and very fortunate timing for me. And so that's why I went there. It's a great firm. It's grown so much even since our most recent acquisition almost a year and a half ago. Um, so it continues to grow and as just stewarded by an incredibly great guy, Jay Silverman and others in the really executive, executive committee. And so it's a great company. And in addition to that, I do, as you know, a lot of advising of companies, private companies of all different kinds of shades and sorts, mostly in fintech and in healthcare regulated industries and to serve on several different kinds of corporate boards. Right. And now as you shifted into the private sector, you know, you're going to be on sort of this side of the fence, if you will, advocating for conscious capitalism. You actually mentioned conscious capitalism and the sort of movement that we're seeing earlier when you were sharing your story. And before uh, in our conversations, you've said that the world is evolving and that finance for just making money is not going to be rewarded anymore. Can you explain what you think will be rewarded in finance moving forward? Beyond what we now know is ESG, what we call ESG, the consumers of tomorrow and the day after tomorrow are, are driving toward and actually demanding that products and services have a component of not just the environment, but also a significant social change and, and social justice. And so putting that as a component to a go-to-market strategy for any company and any product is now essential. And the backing of those companies also needs to evolve because you're going to start finding that although they may be next generation folks now, we call them next geners and family offices, people who will be inheriting the money that their parents have made and will be putting that money to work. Those people are consumers of tomorrow and the, and the day after tomorrow. And they all care about having money be put to work and being raised in an ethical manner. And so genuinely, more and more and more, there's an evolution toward impact. And so trying to find ways of putting money to work while making money and also doing good with your investments. And there's just so many different examples of this. Really, not even three years ago, fund founders that I know would say to me that, they kind of would brush this off and thinking like, oh, this is impact investing is more of a charity than it is a real investment strategy, not expecting a lot of significant returns, but that's just not the case. The evolution of the consumer and what the consumer is demanding in their products and services is allowing for real significant escalation and acceleration of impact companies. You're seeing more and more of it. It's interesting now, three or four years later, the same fund managers that now have all of them have a, a dedicated fund toward impact and have an ESG component to all of their most, if not all of their funds and investment thesis and, and strategies. It's absolutely incredible to see. I'm so encouraged by it, by this, I would say, groundswell, this title shift towards ESG and impact investment. I was once speaking to somebody who said, I can't wait for the day when we don't call it impact investing and we just call it investing. <laughs> Honestly, I think we're we're close to being there. The U.S. financial regulators are looking at actually regulating and putting together some kind of a floor by which companies will be judged 
on the SG components and, and capacity. And so I think once that happens, I think the day will become upon us that it won't be impact investing. It'll just be course of doing business. Right, right. I actually just got introduced to Gene Rogers, uh, who was the former CEO of SASB and just joined Blackstone by one of the, the senior execs at Blackstone who thought that we need to talk about this. We need to talk about ESG a lot more right now at Scholars of Finance. That said, I think it's really important to talk about the current economic circumstances, how things are today. The current projections of the economy are uncertain, and the Federal Reserve is looking to tighten fiscal policy. Do you have any words to our listeners on what kind of outcomes we can expect to see as the Federal Reserve makes some decisions in the coming months? This is interesting. It's going to be recorded, so you can keep me honest, play this back in a couple of months and see if I'm right. But my years of government experience, and both in the, now in the private sector as well, lead me to believe that we're in for a bumpy ride in 2022. We're in a hyperinflationary period. Chairman Powell is a friend and he's a good guy, but I think he was right. I told him actually through TV late last year that the inflation wasn't transitory. It was something that was unfortunately here to stay. I unfortunately turned out to be right. And we have now facing a significant challenge. Inflation, as you know, is a regressionary tax. It's borne most by those who can afford at least. Really, the people who are on the kind of left side of the bell curve are the ones really feeling the squeeze by high gas prices and absence of, of things on the store shelves. And those the things that you can buy are more expensive. So the staples. And so the real challenge is that anything the Federal Reserve is going to do to get inflation under control is also going to be really, really challenging. The same people who are now failing the squeeze from inflation. And so raising interest rates is going to raise the cost of capital for people who live on revolving lines of credit. It's going to make homes more expensive through mortgages and those kinds of things. And, and then one of the more broad challenges that the Federal Reserve is going to have to grapple with is any one point increase in interest rates is a $3 trillion new spending the government has to do to service that debt. And to put that in perspective, the U.S. government spends $3 trillion a year on everything we do in the U.S. government. So that's Department of Education, Department of Treasury, Department of Labor, Department of Defense, all of those important departments, all the things that we know, Department of Interior, all the national parks, and all that you put all that together is about $3 trillion. So the Federal Reserve does raise interest rates by a point, and at that point, they maintain that point throughout a year. That year will take all the money we spend on, on the entire government and will have to be redirected to help service our debt. We'd somehow make up a $3 trillion hole that we have. And so it's a really complicated process. I, I oftentimes say I'm so grateful that Chairman Powell decided to stay in the job. It's a job I don't envy at all. It is an incredibly difficult job. And if he chooses not to raise interest rates, and, but does constrain monetary policy significantly by tapering and then stopping the bond buying program and then constraining actual capital, you know that's also going to be really lumpy. It's going to be highly distortive to the economy and significantly to the markets. One of the major challenges, again, we have right now is the average retail investor has never seen an inflationary period, nor have they invested in a, in a down economy, a significant down economy. And so there's also some consensus around absent ideology. So both from the left and the right, economists are suggesting that we're likely to see a recession going into Q4 of this year. And so if that's the case, it's just going to be a really lumpy year economically where the markets may be a bit bumpy. The impact of the policies are going to have to be rolled out by the Federal Reserve and Department of Treasury and the White House 
to keep the economy from getting too frothy and to put prices in, in check is going to be dramatically felt by everyone, but significantly more by those that are minimum wage earners and those who are, you know, don't make a lot of money, but also is going to have significant impact in the upcoming November elections. Let's just say here, I think it's going to be a very bad year to be an incumbent. Either if you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think it's going to be a bad year to be an incumbent. I think people are going to be really upset about the current state of the economy. And Bill Clinton, former president, said it best when he said that about elections, he said they're always about the economy, stupid. Yeah, absolutely. By the time of this recording, I'm currently reading Ray Dalio's latest book, Principles for the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. And when you look at some of the graphs and charts for America, for China, and you really examine our, our, the current cycle, the, the debt cycle, and where it looks like we are in, the point that it looks like we are at in a debt cycle right now, at least when I'm, as I'm reading the book right now where I'm at, it feels like there's no way out. Do you think there is some path forward? There's, there's a needle to thread that our, our government leaders can find? I naturally gear to be an optimist. And so I will say, yes, it's really hard to find. It's going to be, you know, finding a needle blindfolded, <laughs> you know, a whole field of needles. It's going to be a real challenge. There's no question about it. But I think it's something that we're going to have to deal with because many countries throughout history, throughout, throughout our history of the United States, have not wanted the United States government to succeed. Today, we face three significant foes that I think all of which would be very happy to, to eclipse the United States with, in both in soft and hard power. You know, I think we're going to see some challenges by Iran, by China, and by Russia. And you put those challenges and compound them with the self-inflicted wounds that we have by spending too much money or by, by taking on too much debt, some of which is borne by those countries, it could put us in a precarious spot. But I think that Washington is very prone to act in crises quite quickly. Unfortunately, I think I'll probably take a crisis to force Washington to act, but I think it will rise to the challenge when, when the crisis happens. But absent that, in normal course, unfortunately, it's a statistic that I'm not too happy to say, but the government has never, at least in my experience and in my research, has never actually closed down a social spending program that it created. In fact, what it does most often is create a social program meant to stick around for a year and then sticks around and around forever and just keep giving more money to it. So we have this you know, cycle of spending more and more money. The debt has heretofore really never been felt by the American people. The significant ballooning of debt has never been something that touched the American household in a way that's really meaningful. But when it does, and we could be at a place now where actually May, even this year, that I think it'll cause people to, around the kitchen tables to be pretty grumpy about it. And that will lead to some, could lead to some policy changes in Washington, which are long overdue. I appreciate you sharing. Sometimes you have to swallow a bitter pill and you have to embrace reality and deal with it. As Ray Dalio would say, to, to quote him at least, or understand reality and deal with it, as Ray Dalio would say. I want to hit you. I know I only have a few minutes, Chris. I'd love to hit you with a few rapid fire questions, if I may, before we wrap up. Yep. First, just tying to this conversation we're having now, I'd love to hear what you think all of our members listening should learn and take away from this incoming economic situation, this current economic situation that we're in and what's going to happen next. What do you hope we all learn from this and how can we have eyes wide open and maximize our learning over the next year or two? Yeah, gosh, that's a great question. And I could go on for hours on this one. So I'll go as fast as I can. Like, I think that 
certainly with the lens of the organization you built, underscores the opportunity that companies have to be able to find ways of creating companies, creating opportunities, services, and goods that can be used and bought by folks that who are going to be hurt by this issue, by the economic uh, crisis that we perhaps could be walking into. It also really matters, I think, because of this growing divide between the haves and have-nots in our country. You can see it by incredible polarization in, in the politics. So you have these people self-declaring them to be socialist, and you have these crazy conservatives that want to create their own states and their own countries. On both sides, you have this incredible polarization. And that's a lot because of there's this, this huge chasm between what ha- the haves and have-nots. Conscious capital just has to be aware of that. And there has to be a way that we can actually grow the pie so that everyone benefits. And that can be really dramatically felt in a very uncertain economic time. And so folks like the principles that you promote and and others that are, you know, those that are doing impact or ESG or conscious capitalism in general, they perhaps could have a year or maybe a two years of really leaning in and really demonstrating what this kind of new wave of thinking can do and what it really can bring to an economy that's as big as ours, but also could be facing some challenges. Another rapid fire question for you, Chris. There are a lot of people listening to this podcast who are either currently entrepreneurs, they've built their own fund, they're students who want to build a fund one day. They are very, very seasoned executives and investors who are trying to act like a startup, who are trying to be entrepreneurial and innovate at their companies. You advise a lot of startups, you sit on boards, you sit on advisory boards. What are one or two key pieces of advice you would offer anybody trying to innovate or build something from the ground up? The first thing is obviously getting a great idea and you know protecting it. Secondly, it really matters an enormous amount with whom you surround yourself. Human capital is probably the most important thing you're ever going to do. And then I think oftentimes I find that's a mistake is that companies entrepreneurs want and need capital so badly that they think that all capital is the same. I just genuinely don't believe that. So I believe that I always believe in strategic capital. Oftentimes tell entrepreneurs, even that are significantly cash drop positions, uh, to not take money is not strategic. The time horizons are on when the company should be sold or acquired or go public. That can be a significant mismatch if you get the right wrong kind of capital. You know, there could be significant disputes and challenges of how to grow the company or you know which how to launch the product. Anyway, there's just having an alignment with the, your capital source is exceptionally important, especially in the early stages of a company. Thanks. And Chris, one final question for you. You get a ton of speaking requests. You're incredibly busy. And here you are taking an hour on this podcast to help the scholars of finance community. You've spoken to our students. You've been a great mentor and coach to our team. Made a lot of introductions to a lot of very, very senior leaders and great organizations to help us grow. I'd love to know what stands out to you or stood out to you about scholars of finance and our mission. Why did you get involved and why would you encourage others to do the same? You're building an organization that would have been so impactful in my life growing up. I really liked when we first spoke that the challenge you're undertaking is building a new an army of people who are going to go out there after their MBA program or after their undergraduate program 
and become the next, you know, Ray Dalio's, you know, the next masters of finance. And so if you get them early and kind of leave a lasting imprint on them and how important all of these fundamental ideas are, you're going to have a significant impact in the next generation of how capitalism is raised and how capital is used. And so I mean, it really became a no-brainer because all of those things are so important and so impactful in what I have done and what I am doing and what I want to do next. And so with that, it was kind of a no-brainer, if you will, aligning to you and knowing your sincerity as well and all of these principles was also very important to me. Thanks, Chris. I take that as very high praise and we're very, very grateful for your support. I want to thank you for coming on the Investing in Integrity podcast today. It was a total blast. Would love to have you on again in the future and hope you have an amazing rest of your week uh, until we, we see each other again. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.